Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. A new interim leader for Egypt after its army ousts President Morsi. But is this a coup? The government wants 30,000 army reservists by 2018. Can it be done? The clock's ticking on Trident. Does Britain need a permanent at-sea nuclear deterrent? And the Prime Minister's whistle-stop tour of Central Asia. Egypt's most senior judge has been sworn in as an interim president after the military deposed the democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. Millions have been celebrating his downfall on the streets of Cairo and millions have not. The BBC's Quentin Somerville is there and I'm joined as usual by our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello. Uh, Quentin, uh, Morsi out, an interim president in. Does this go anywhere near to fixing Egypt's problems? Well, when that announcement was made by General al-Sisi, the uh, head of the army yesterday, he said that he was suspending the constitution. He was going to bring in uh, Mr Mansour as an interim president. Uh, He said that what he wanted to do was end division and polarisation in Egypt. Well, that's a very, very tall order indeed because something like 13 million people voted uh, for President Morsi, who, of course, was ousted in this military coup. There's probably no other word for it than a military coup. Uh, And his supporters are very, very disgruntled today. But the majority of Egyptians, certainly here in Cairo, have been celebrating. And this morning we were woken up with some roaring fighter jets all over Cairo doing an aeronautical display, just reminding everybody that... Cairo, Egypt were under new management and it was the army that brought about this change. It's incredible to think, isn't it, that Tahrir Square has been busy ever since Hosni Mubarak was ousted. Um, can you remind us why the Egyptians really did want to get rid of President, or those that did want to get rid of President Mohamed Morsi? You're absolutely right. It's incredibly extraordinary because it's happened in such a short space of time too. The the mass rallies that took place in Egypt expressing dissatisfaction with President Morsi only began on Sunday. Uh, Millions of people took to the streets uh, all across Egypt, not just here in Cairo, to express their dissatisfaction. They were unhappy about a whole range of things. They're unhappy about uh, President Morsi's uh, performance with the economy, unhappy about the deteriorating security situation here. Egypt's become a far less safe place uh, since Hosni Mubarak uh, was ousted. But one of the biggest grudges among the anti-Morsi camp were that he wasn't a president for Egypt. He was an Islamist and he was the president of the Muslim Brotherhood before he was president of this uh, united country. So in that very short space of time when we saw those unprecedented scenes of millions of people on the street, the army said, this is unprecedented so we have to intervene. That's when they gave that 48-hour deadline. If you don't shape up President Morsi, they said, incidentally, he was the army's supreme commander, but they weren't, fo- they weren't following that chain of command. If you don't shape up, then uh, we will interfere. And they did. That deadline expired. And a couple of hours afterwards, as I saw when I was wandering around the streets of Cairo, there were armoured personnel carriers and troops at some of the major junctions. You, you said that the people that wanted to get rid of Mercy saw him as not a, a president for Egypt. Isn't that exactly the problem, though, finding that someone that everyone can agree really is? Well, if you look back to the transition from Hosni Mubarak's time, it happened in a relatively short space of time and it happened in a country that one was totally unprepared for elections, totally unprepared for democracy. And when you speak to some 
liberal uh, uh, Egyptians, they will tell you that many of them voted for Morsi, but the reason they voted for Morsi because the other cho choice was one of uh, President Hosni Mubarak's uh, uh, cronies, and they didn't want to vote for him. So they, 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 they call themselves bitter lemon voters. They sucked on the lemon. They didn't want to vote for Morsi, but they had to do it because they didn't want uh, a crony of Hosni Mubarak in power. Now that they've got a bit of breathing space, and because of the dissatisfaction with President Morsi's handling, they believe that they will be able to come up with a candidate who unifies all of Egypt. But that is going to be a tall order because the Muslim Brotherhood have said this is a military coup. They've said that their democratically elected president, and let's remember Egypt's very first democratically freely elected president, has been removed in a military coup by the army. Christopher Lee, um, if the democratic process so far has failed, it doesn't bode well for Egypt, does it? Um, no, but you've got to remember a, a couple of things which are very important. The, the, the hallmark of any society which is going to get over its problems with both what people want and how people are governed and by whom is an independent judiciary. And Egypt had lost that. The significance of making sure that uh, Chief Justice Mansour is the interim president becomes very important. And that's when you get down again to the semantics of it. Uh, we talk about a coup. I mean, in, 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 in ways, this is not a coup. It's a coup if the, if, if the colonels get in and they run the place as they did, I don't know, let's say nine, uh, in, the, in the 1950s with Gamal Abdul Nasser. But this is, this is really an intervention. It's what happens in the next few days, whether they, we move towards a parliament, whether we move towards what sort of elections, etc., which decides whether you're going to have that independent judiciary, which is the keystone of any success. And, and do you think this was a coup, Christopher? Um... If it looks like a coup and it walks like a coup, that's what it is. It's a coup. Um, but I would, I would suggest that uh, I would suggest that if you, if they're still there, and if the if if Mr. Mansour is not there, let's say in a couple of weeks' time, and some general is running the place, that you've got a coup. Today you haven't got a coup, but that doesn't really matter. What you've got is one that walks like one. Quentin uh, William Haig has said the UK will work with the people in authority in Egypt, but condemned the ousting of its president as a dangerous thing. The US President Barack Obama has said he was deeply concerned by events. Have America or Britain anything to worry about here? Well, it's interesting that Barack Obama, the words that he didn't use were military coup. And the reason he didn't do that is because America funnels $1.3 billion into the Egyptian military every single year. And Egypt is seen as such a vital ally in this region. It's often said, it's something of a cliche, that where Egypt goes, the rest of the Arab world follows, that Britain and America need Egypt as an ally. So it's been clear that while uh, there has been some condemnation, no one has said that they will stop speaking to Egypt, stop working with Egypt, and nobody, it seems, I certainly haven't heard anybody saying that President Morsi needs to be put back into power. All right, Quentin Somerville in Cairo, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what's the future for Trident? Could Britain do without a permanent Axie nuclear deterrent? And David Cameron's tour of Central Asia. Why is Kazakhstan so important? This is BFBS. Sit rep. Army reservists are going to get military pensions and healthcare benefits as part of a government effort to drive up numbers and bolster regular forces. The package, which also includes benefits for employers, was announced yesterday by Defence Secretary Philip Hammond. Last night, I spoke to the Personnel, Welfare and Veterans Minister, Marc Francois, and asked him if the new incentives were enough to get 30,000 army reservists by 2018. 
I, I genuinely believe that it is. Um, I served as an infantry officer in the Territorial Army in the 1980s. I can remember going on a thing called Exercise Lionheart in 1984. Uh, in those days, the Territorial Army had 75,000 trained personnel under arms, and that was with a smaller population than we've got now. So I've got to believe that if we manage to have 75,000 then, we can get to 30,000 now. Talking about targets, the Shadow Defence Secretary says TA recruitment targets were missed by more than four. 4,000 last year. It doesn't bode well, does it? Well, this is why we've launched the white paper today. We now, to use a military analogy, uh, we're now going to cross the start line, or the line of departure, as I think it's now known, and then really get on with it. So this is launching, in a sense, uh, the recruitment uh, effort. And uh, now that that's out there, and now that we've also got uh, employer support, uh, there's been a lot of debate about will employers back this. Well, uh, the CBI... The, uh, the IOD, the Federation of Small Businesses, uh, the Business Services Association, uh, the British Chambers of Commerce, all of whom between them have many thousands of member companies, have all signed up to something called the Corporate Covenant, which is uh, the business equivalent of the Armed Forces Covenant. They signed that last week. And as part of that, there's a specific commitment to support releasing em uh, uh, employees for reserve service. So in a nutshell, we've got the big employer organisations on board for this. So I believe we've got employer support and I believe we've got enough in the package to make it attractive to people to join and stay in what will now be known as the Army Reserve. Critics see this whole recruitment of reservists as being driven by savings, an army on the cheap, they call it. Will it be as good an army as it is today? I don't think it's an army on the cheap because we're putting £1.8 billion in over 10 years in order to finance this programme to provide more exciting training, more overseas training, more modern equipment so that the reserves will be equipped to operate alongside their regular counterparts. Can you shed any light on what happened with the Defence Secretary's announcement where he was described by the Speaker in the House today as woefully inadequate and utterly incompetent? There was a delay in getting some of the paperwork to the MPs uh, in the chamber. It, it was an error. It wasn't intentional. Something did go wrong. Uh, but nevertheless, they did get that information to the MPs in, in the chamber. It just took longer than it should have done. It was a mistake, and the Secretary of State apologised. It's just one of those things. Hopefully that won't happen again. Defence Minister Mark Francois speaking to me yesterday. Well, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is still here, and Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb joins us down the line from Westminster. Hello, General. Um, you con contributed to the Future Reserves 2020, an independent commission to review the UK's reserve forces, published its report back in 2011. Is yesterday's white paper what you'd hope to see? I, I think it's a, it's a fair effort. The, uh, don't forget, we finished off our report, which we started in 2010, when Parliament, the Prime Minister, said we should look at what was about to, to happen in, in, the, in the outfall of the SDSR. Uh, we reported in 2011, that was myself, General Horton, and uh, Julian Brazer, the MP. Um, you saw the Green Paper last year. There's been a beltlet of people, about 3,000, that then contributed to that thought piece. And I went through the White Paper the other night, and I think it is a substantive. I think it is absolutely in the right direction, and I think it has many of those parts in it which... You know, if they were not there, then this would have been more challenging. My view is that this absolutely is on the right course, the right trajectory for, um, for getting this right. Do you think the target of 30,000 trained and deployable army reservists by 2018 can be achieved? 
Yeah, and I think the important thing is that that that, that and, and I and I don't do that glibly. I mean, I, I was talking to some captain of industry the other day, and 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 when he said, you know, well, what are the figures? And I said, you know, it's thirty thousand. He sort of said, you know, only thirty thousand. You know, we had ninety plus in the old early days of the Cold War. I think Mark talked about when he was, in fact, serving back in the 1980s of 75,000. I don't see that being as, as, as a problem. The problem would have come if there wasn't a good buy-in, and there is in this paper very clear and very comprehensive buy-in from the employers, and if the proposition wasn't looking that good, and if there wasn't, the $1.8 billion sitting there saying, hey, listen, this is right. The, the, the point will be, it'll be a different army than the one we have now as we come out of 10 years of operation where they have absolutely nailed their duty, service, sacrifice, done an extraordinary job. But if I was to turn around and say, what do we need as a nation for the 21st century? And this is a troubled century, both at home and abroad. The truth of the matter is it needs to be a balance of force. And I think that's where the reserves... I said it in the report, it was for others to judge whether that was right. Parliament, MOD, General Wall, all the rest, the Defence Secretary. But my view is that, therefore, you know, that seemed from what we looked at, from history, from the current problems, and as we could see the future, in many ways, uh, a view to say this is the sort of balance, the proportion between regular and reserve that makes sense to us. Christopher, um, yesterday we heard the Defence Secretary saying there was no Plan B, and the General there saying it will be a different army. What will it look like, assuming Plan A does work? Uh, because you've got a, Because you've got such a huge task here, you can't have Plan B. You, you'll adjust it as you go along, and that's the way things work. But if you if you go back to, where are we, just six years ago, five, six, six years ago, when the last territorial army uh, structure was, was put in place, they were looking for 36,000, 37,000 people, and they couldn't get them. And so the first task is you've got to be sure how you recruit. Now, when you say, oh, and we've talked to, let's say, the CBI, the IOD, etc., and all the big employers' organizations say, yeah, that's what we want to do. We, 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 uh, uh, we, we're for this. I can go back to the old NELCA, the National Employers Liaison Committee, who said exactly the same thing. Trouble is, when you come down to a company, uh, maybe a, a small business, which has got somebody, and they said, well, yes, a few years ago, we'd have said, go off for a weekend, and I get a better, a better guy working for me when he comes back on Monday. It's not like that anymore. It is far more specialists. The Army's got to do good training, not just interesting training, not just exciting training. It's got to be good training. So, therefore, we're talking about something much bigger, and we're talking almost a sort of a changing attitude in society. And I've heard this spoken about before changing attitude in society until you get that you don't have to go back and have another cold war to get it when you get that then perhaps this has a very very good chance it's the most ambitious and i think the most thought through organization that we've, we've probably seen in the territorial army since well since i suppose conscription finished in 1960 general um, what do you think the army of the future is going to look like well, I, I think that, and, and you know, a, a lot of what Christopher said is, is is absolutely on the money. You know, our report was absolutely crystal clear. We said, you know, you know, the, the reserve or the TA at that point in time were in decline. You know, and this was a case. It wasn't just society; it was the department, it was the army. There was a whole range of issues that, in fact, needed to be addressed. That cultural change is absolutely sort of captured in the in the piece of work. And that's uh, why. Do you think the right caliber of person is going to want to join in future? Oh God, we're we're a volunteer nation. We're fantastic at that. You look at the role, the RNLI. You look at the uh, people who go out and look after birds and wildlife. You know, we are actually, in fact, you know, a very inclusive nation. And so, volunteering is absolutely right. The proposition's got to be right. And I agree entirely with Chris 
Minister when it's the idea of the value added in the leadership. And I do see these young men and women coming back from operations, and I sense in the training that's going to be ahead, and with clear roles, clear purpose, and great training. My view is, in fact, the employers will get somebody back that's really good, but we do need rigour. You know, the RFCA has just put out its report. It reports to Parliament. and it When will you say we oversee. need rigour going ahead, what are the pitfalls that we, we might oh, fall into? Oh, the answer is there'll be, a, there'll be a number of people. It doesn't matter what you do. When you're into change, people just don't like change. And so what's important is you have actually oversight which looks at what is happening and says, this is what was presented to Parliament, this is what the Department said it would do, and somebody needs to say, and you're bloody well doing it. So and that's where the RFCA, in many ways, I think, will be a very powerful voice in, in this. And it's that sort of combination of pieces that, that I think underline what is, you know, this is a big change programme. I think it's a real big cultural change. It is a great opportunity. It's absolutely necessary. Chris, it's a trouble century. So I, just, just a quick personal thing. I, I commanded one of these, uh, a, a reserve group, including one of the best RMR forces that I ever saw uh, down, at, um, down at Chatham. The one thing that bothered me all the time was how the regular services saw people who were TA, uh, RMR, RNR, uh, as, as it was then. Afghanistan has probably changed that quite a lot. But I'll give you one thought. I was talking to somebody the other day, came back from Afghanistan, went back, he's lost. He hasn't got a unit to go back to. He hasn't, he's not, he's not part of this sort of part of the regular unit when he goes back. So I think we've got to get it into the heads of people that this is not just the reserve, it's not just a new name for the TA or whatever. It is part of an army, and that's what that particular part does. And I think until we get that through, uh, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the problems that were there in the old days will, will exist. General, briefly. Yeah, no, again, I mean, I, I obviously spent a belt load of time getting shot out in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, the youth get it. You know, in many ways, some of the older members, in fact, they remember the, 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 the TA as it was, which was fit for the Cold War. This is different. What we have, in fact, is to make that absolutely active in in integration, a real partnership. And my view is, you know, all that's within the balance. Peter Wall is absolutely leading the charge in this. There's many people I talk to in uniform who get the contribution that the reservists can bring. They can bring cyber. They can bring languages. They can bring cost cuts. They can do stuff that, in fact, actually the regulars can't. And we don't just want an army for the future that looks like the army of the past. If you defend the past, you'll absolutely lose the future. All right, Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, thank you very much for your time today. The Lib Dems are considering calling for Britain to give up its permanent at-sea nuclear deterrent within the next few years. A report on the various options has been delivered to the Prime Minister and his deputy and is due to be made public in the next few weeks. Rear Admiral Chris Parry is a strategic forecaster. Good to talk to you today, Chris. Um, what are the various options for Trident? I think uh, we've been round the boy intellectually and strategically on this uh, for some years and I suspect that nothing uh, new will come out of this review. Um, the options normally boil down to changing the sort of missile or delivery system uh, that submarines carry or, or keeping the submarines alongside until uh, they're needed in tension or, or, of course, in wartime. And is that a viable option not to replace some of the four submarines and to keep some at port? 
I don't think it's ever an option to leave your deterrent alongside. It leaves you open to a preemptive strike. That's the first thing. And secondly, what sort of political signal does it send uh, when tension is ramping up and you suddenly sail your nuclear ballistic missile submarine? Uh, so in terms of deterrent theory, uh, it's incredibly faulty and militarily it's absolutely nonsensical. So, Christopher, what do you think the options that are seriously being considered are at the moment? The first thing isn't being considered, and that's not having a nuclear deterrent. You've got all three parties who say we go for nuclear deterrent. And, and Chris's point is absolutely right that, you know, you don't, leave, you don't leave yourself alongside. The whole point of an SLBM is you don't know where it is, or the NAB doesn't know where it is. And that continues to be uh, important. So, really, keep it at sea. Given that the Liberal Democrats seem to be considering um, not having a continuous trident deterrent at sea, does it signal that they do accept there does need to be some kind of nuclear deterrent, that their thinking is actually changing and the options, the other options they previously talked about are now ruled out? Well, uh, we'll have to wait and see. I suspect it'll be a mixture of some of the old uh, theory and uh, some new dressed-up ideas. Um, at the end of the day, we've got a perfectly uh, valid deterrent posture in the United Kingdom and we probably need to stick with it as the 21st century unfolds. Christopher Lee, what decision is going to be made when, do you think? It doesn't have to be made until the after the next election. And the present class uh, can go on until, what, 20... 25 Admiral? That's uh, right. Probably a bit longer than that. Well, it but you have to the... take the decisions, don't you? Uh, much earlier, because you can't just sort of swap them over. And that is the important point. So immediately after the election, somebody's got to take the decision. If you haven't got a coalition, I suspect uh, it might be an easier, de easier decision to take. Uh, Christopher, um, given the events uh, unfolding that we've been talking about in Egypt, you have a, a specific issue you want to raise today. Don't yeah, you? it's. Um, it's nothing to do with Trident. But if I were, just supposing I were driving an MCMV in the Gulf at the moment, how closely would I be keeping my eye on Egypt? Well, I think um, we have to bear in mind that the Gulf actually is almost a different context to what's going on in Egypt. I think what we do have to keep an eye on, of course, is transits of our warships and auxiliaries through the uh, Suez Canal. I don't think there'll be a problem. Right now, the military are pretty popular uh, in Egypt. Um, and I don't think the... Uh, Muslim Brotherhood are going to do anything until they've tested their arm in the next elections. I think the key question is for the Egyptian military and every, everyone else is what happens if the Egyptian people vote in the Muslim Brotherhood again? It's a real problem. I think in the Gulf there's sufficient cover for those MCMVs and they can get on with do, doing their great job. All right, Rear Admiral Chris Parry, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS SIGREP. David Cameron has been visiting Central Asia. The Prime Minister's tour took in Pakistan and Kazakhstan, but began in Camp Bastion. BFBS reporter James Hurst was with him. David Cameron arrived in Afghanistan just in time for Armed Forces Day. The usual round of meals, brews and chats with some of the servicemen and women serving there. There are around 7,900 of them in all, even though Afghan forces are now leading all combat operations. Why we are here on this Armed Forces Day, it's a day to say thank you, it's a day to say how proud we are of what you do. Why we're still here is to stop Afghanistan being a haven for terrorists, terrorist training camps and terrorist planning and plotting. And what is remarkable Remarkable is since 2001, Afghanistan hasn't been used for those purposes against the United Kingdom. So our mission has been successful. To make sure it goes on being successful, we've got to make sure the Afghan National Army and security forces and Afghan government are capable of continuing the work. That's what the last period is about, and I'm confident they will be capable of doing the work. How concerned are you then when you hear the... Uh 
chief of the Helmand Provincial Council saying that the north of this province, where British troops used to fight, they've lost lives, is in danger of falling back into the hands of the Taliban. Well, obviously, we want as much of Afghanistan, as much as Helmand as possible, uh, to be properly controlled by the government of Afghanistan and properly under the security of Afghan forces. And I believe that is what's happening. Is there still an insurgency? Yes, there is. But is the Afghan army capable of withholding it? Yes, I believe they are. But what we need alongside the military, the security answer, is that political process that says to those who aren't reconciled to the Afghan regime, There is a future without bombs and bullets. There's a political future, and you should be part of that. From Helmand, Hercules took Mr Cameron to Kabul for talks with President Karzai. The fractious relationship with Afghanistan's neighbour Pakistan high on the agenda. And the next flight took Mr Cameron to Pakistan. He became the first world leader to visit the country's newly elected Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif and discuss the same neighbourly frictions. Building on the trilateral process that I've been leading between the UK, Afghanistan and Pakistan, I welcome the Prime Minister's commitment to working with Afghanistan in defeating terrorism across the region. Mr Cameron has long been trying to broker improve relations between Afghanistan and Pakistan, but the editor of Prospect magazine, Bronwyn Maddox, thinks his chances are limited. The relationship between the government in Islamabad and Kabul uh, has not been very easy. And it, uh, I think Pakistan is very much itself looking to the Western forces' exit as a chance to increase its own influence with the Taliban and the government. So this is a bigger game than Britain, I think, alone can influence. The final leg of Mr Cameron's tour was nominally about trade. He took a business delegation to Kazakhstan, where they finished off deals worth around three-quarters of a billion pounds. Since the year 2000, this country has seen growth at an annual rate of between 8 and 9%. Per capita income has doubled and it has the potential to be the sixth largest oil and gas producer in the world. While economic ties might have been top of Mr Cameron's list, there's influence in the region at stake too. A strategic partnership was signed which included not just trade but also defence and security cooperation. A Downing Street source had been frank that Britain is playing catch-up in Kazakhstan. Roman Maddox thinks this first visit by a serving Prime Minister to the country was a smart move. David Cameron, I think, looked at Kazakhstan and saw what many other governments have seen a bit earlier, which is a huge potential trading partner, as well as a country that will help get out kit from Afghanistan, has an awful lot of gas reserves, uh, is a vast uh, country that is very significant in that region, and a key one. If Britain wants influence in Central Asia, then it's a key one with which to have relations. And good relations with Kazakhstan are needed now. The country has finally just ratified a deal for British flights through its airspace for the Afghan drawdown. And the PM said progress was made during his meeting with the Kazakh president for land routes too. BFS reporter James Hurst there. Well, uh, David Cameron, Christopher, also told the Commons on Tuesday he was encouraged by the commitment of Pakistan's new Prime Minister, Nawaz Sharif. Um, should he be worried about stability in Pakistan? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of people in Pakistan itself who will tell you that the country has become a dysfunctional government and it could be a failed state. And you have to put that in the, in, in the whole question we've always said about Pakistan is the key to Afghanistan but it's the whole region Uh, you've got Iran Central Asian republics the three most important republics Pakistan and India if they are not fixed if you're not dealing with a lot of them plus Taliban Afghanistan doesn't work let's just return uh, to the top story to Egypt uh, before we go Um, it started as the Arab Spring events and unfolding now into something perhaps quite different. Are we entering a different era where people power is actually achieving unexpected things? Yeah, and it's going to be more so. If you remember, we started off with a guy burning himself to death in Tunisia. And people said, good gracious me, within a week, the boss had gone. 
the president gone. And so it went on, and so it's still going on. And we've got uh, Indonesia, the Middle East, Turkey, um, Brazil. And are they feeding off the same kind of feeling? What they're doing is feeding off a new emotion which you're getting with educated, half-educated, 28, 29, 30-year-olds, want expectations and, and getting dissatisfied, not with one thing, because it all started off with different things, haven't they? Turkey is all about a forest, um, and, 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 and Brazil is about football, etc., Here's the question that people like the World Bank and, these, uh, and people like the International Monetary Fund are starting to ask. What would happen if 4 billion people in the world, and these are the people of the dysfunctional countries, what would happen if 4 billion people took to their equivalent to Tahrir Square? How would global politics cope with it? The answer is most global politics is going dysfunctional and it would not be able to cope. Imagine the society... So you're talking about 4 billion people in dysfunctional countries. Is this something in functional countries that they should be worrying about as well? Yeah, it, most certainly, it most, most certainly would be. If you, for example, if you take the million that marched against uh, Britain going into the Iraq war, and we dismiss this now, we almost forget about it. But it was that point when people started saying, government doesn't take any notice of us. And if you're a 28, 30-year-old, educated, no job, you feel government's not taking any notice of us. And that's exactly what's happening again in Egypt today. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrep. And remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now.